What's up and how are you, Shape America? This is Sean Nevels, educator, coach, and host for the Shape America podcast. And this is episode two of our EDI series. Episode one, we introduced um, Dr. Kenny Smith out of Montgomery County Public Schools, um, and he really brought us in and kind of defined social justice for us. So make sure you go back on that. You can listen to the podcast, however you listen to podcasts, or you can get onto the Shape America YouTube page and check out the video there. Now, this is episode two. So for this episode, we're going to stick to Montgomery Public Schools, and I want to bring in Dr. Daryl Howard, um, Equity Instructional Specialist there in Montgomery County Public Schools. Dr. Howard, how are you? Hey, hey, how you doing, Coach? Good to see hey, you. Hey, I, I appreciate that. It's always good to still hear that I'm a coach, even though I'm behind this mic right now. <laughs> so, Dr. Howard, you're going to bring a different perspective. We're going to have a different talk around social justice for our listeners. But before we get to that, go ahead and tell us about what you do in Montgomery County Public Schools and your journey just across education to now. Sure. Um, so my my primary work with our school district is that of an equity instructional specialist. So um, Monday through Friday, nine to five, what I do is I teach educators about the impact of race and culture on teaching and learning. So we, we, we kind of divide our work up into three different ways. Um, one thing we're always looking to do is have people kind of reflect on who they are as a racial and cultural being, um, recognizing biases and being able to work through those. Um, another piece of it is kind of looking at the students um, and what do we know about the students that we serve, the students that are sitting in these, in these chairs and desks in front of us. Um, so learning more about them. And then the third part of it is kind of thinking about ourselves. What do we know about these students? And then how do we create spaces where everybody feels connected and feels like they belong? Um, so that's my primary work outside of the school district. Um, a couple of things that I'm a part of are my nonprofit, which is the Bond, um, the Bond Project, which stands for Building Our Network of Diversity. It was uh, really developed and rooted in this idea that workforce diversity is a problem in education. Um, across the board, um, our educators, only 2% are Black or Latino men. And we know that our classrooms don't look like that. So the challenge is, what are we going to do about that? Um, so we started with that, with that focus. And then we transitioned to, um, over, the, over the course of the pandemic, we started working with young men more in virtual spaces because we, we felt that they needed to have um, a space that was for them, that they could learn, they could talk, they could grow. Um, we were all in a tough spot during the pandemic, trying to figure out how to social distance and wear a mask and seeing people sick. And so we provided this space for them. And we're ultimately hoping that um, they're going to become leaders through, our, through the interaction with us, but also they may possibly consider becoming teachers. So it's also like a little bit of a, of a grow your own type of, of a program. And the last thing that I'm involved with, with that speaks to that work is I'm the chair of the Achieving Academic Equity and Excellence for Black Boys Initiative in the state of Maryland. So it's something new that just started and we have pilot schools across the state um, in which we are implementing recommendations and best practices from a year of research that we put in to say, what is it that we need to, to do in schools differently 
that would allow black boys to have more academic success um, in their buildings. So we have some pilot schools. We're going to try these things. We're going to have some proof of concept of what works and what doesn't work. And then hopefully it will span out across the entire state. Then hopefully other states will pay attention to it um, as well. Um, the disproportionality of our African-American boys in terms of academic performance, as well as um, issues with discipline really needs to be examined. Um, and I can go into a lot greater detail about that, but um, you asked me to introduce myself. So those are my three primary things that I usually um, speak to when I talk about my most meaningful work. You know, a lot of the great educators wear many hats. So, you know, <laughs> speak freely and, you know, share that entire story because it all matters and it makes you who you are today and a lot of the work that you do. So, you know, going back to our first episode, when we talked to uh, Kenneth Smith, you know, he kind of defined social justice in three pockets, but in the work that you do, you deal more with policy and practice. So what does social justice mean when we talk about policy, especially kind of at the level that you work at? Yeah, so so Kenneth Smith, he's he's classroom-based teacher, school-based educator. So the work that I do is at the district level where we're talking about issues of, of social justice, even though we don't name them as such. Um, really, it is more um, equity, diversity, inclusion type work. And in our district, um, where we are in Maryland, we're pretty progressive. So we've even moved into the language of anti-racism, um, which we know that, of course, across the country, everybody's having different conversations about race and social emotional learning and uh, all of these controversial, uh, could be controversial topics. So what we want to do is be very specific about analyzing data, recognizing where inequities exist, and then being strategic in how we want to approach how we're going to try and reduce those disparities. Like that's the that's the that's the focus of it. In fact, um, with our nonprofit organization Bond, one of the things that we did, I think it was last week or the week before, um, we had a um, we had a, a panel discussion. We call it a, a, a summit, um, and we had a conversation about what is equity and anti-racism work in schools. And we had folks from, um, from Kansas City, we had folks from Atlanta, we had folks from Tennessee, um, different parts of Maryland, because we really want to share what this work looks like. Because oftentimes we're just seeing news accounts and school board meetings that are being disrupted and nobody knows what race and equity work looks like in school. So we wanted to provide a space for people to really become aware, knowledgeable, have some, have some critical thinking around, um, around this topic so they can make an informed decision about how they, how they may feel about it, how they may want to support it. So give us then, give the listeners kind of, you know, the, the cliff nose version of anti-racism in schools and how that work, how that looks. So, so when, we, when we're talking about what happens in schools, um, that is more of what, what Kenneth talked about last week. So I would definitely have folks tune back into that, to that particular podcast because it's talking about um, strategies, practices, approaches for engaging students. Like that's the main thing that culturally responsive teaching is about. It's about engagement. You're not going to improve academic 
academic performance if your students aren't engaged. Your students aren't going to behave in class if they're not engaged. So culturally responsive teaching is really about how can I bring what I bring into the classroom, but allow students to bring their experiences into the classroom so we can have some connection points that makes the content real for them. If the content isn't real for them, if they feel disconnected from it, they're not going to, they're not going to want to engage it. Engagement is a key point of culturally responsive practices. Now with larger district equity and anti-racism work, so we're looking at issues of school culture. We're looking at um, should there be school resource officers in class, excuse me, in schools, and does that impact um, suspensions, expulsions, arrests, et cetera. We're looking at workforce diversity. We're looking at the curriculum. Um, and we're trying to examine in the curriculum, do we have a, 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 a full narrative um, in, in, our, in our different um, content areas where we can hear the varied perspectives that exist from the stories of America, right? So it's, it's looking at those big buckets of, of information um, in, in the departments and trying to examine what are the ways that we can be more inclusive district-wide systemic, right? Um, so culturally responsive teaching is more that individual piece, one-on-one um, -on -one with your students, but equity anti-racism work is more um, institutional, kind of like examining departments, examining systems and how your district may work and trying to disrupt that disproportionality. Right, right. Now I'm gonna take us back kind of to the beginning of this conversation because you mentioned two big pieces, you know, when we're talking about social justice and policies and that's race and culture. Mm -hmm. Take us through, cause you know, for a lot of our listeners, maybe race and policies don't seem to go hand in hand. How does race play into some of the policies of education? How does race play into some of the policies in education? So, you know, when I think about, you know, when I think about, you know, redlining, you know, kind of one of the, some of the historic things like redlining and things like that, how do some of those things play into the space of education? So I, I, I guess the example that I would give is um, with my work with, with Black boys, and this started back in the late 90s when I did my, I did my master's thesis on culturally responsive strategies and techniques for counseling African-American boys. That was before I became a school counselor, school-based counselor. Um, and I've been doing this work for over 20 years. What remains the same is the data. In every school, your data may suggest that your Black boys are doing poorly on their standardized math assessments, standardized English assessments, um, PSAT, they're uh, least likely to be in AP and honors level classes, um, lower college acceptance rates, lower graduation rates, right? So all of those areas, they're the lowest in, and that data is clear. They're the highest in referrals, suspensions, expulsions, so, so, you're, so you're the lowest in some of the outcomes that are needed to be successful, but you're the highest in those indicators of things that are problematic. So what that tells me is either young black boys, a racial group are 
predisposed to negative outcomes or we're doing something wrong in our schools. And schools look at this data every single year. You create a school improvement plan based off your data. And you say that, what are, what are the uh, student learning outcomes we're gonna have for this particular group? But we do not change practice. So we do not use the data that we have to drive the practices that are important for, uh, for changing outcomes. And I'll, I'll reference the work of Paul Gorski Paul Gorski out of, I believe he's still at George Mason. Um, he talks about what, what it means to be equity literate is number one, being able to, um, to see equity, to, 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 to recognize it, right? But then you have to be able, because everybody can recognize it. Everybody can see inequities. Sometimes in our mind, we think that those equity inequities are supposed to be like that. We've always seen them that way that we just bought into the narrative. That's what it is. We can't change it. Well, we can change it, right? So we have to first recognize it, but then we have to be bold enough to respond to it. And most people, that's where they, that's where they stop. Because that means that you have to, to reach beyond yourself and you have to do something about it. You have to interrupt something that is problematic in schools for a particular group of students. Then the third thing that you have to do that he talks about is that you have to redress. You have to not only recognize, you have to respond, but then you have to redress. You have to teach people about why this is problematic. And lastly is the policy piece, uh, Coach. Like when he talks about creating and sustaining, like those behaviors, those ways of interrupting, those ways of changing programs and policies um, aren't going to stay in place unless it becomes a policy. So if, if, we want to, if we want to change something, we then have to make sure that we are creating a, a, a norm or a rule or a policy that says that this is the way we're going to deal with this issue so that we reduce the impact that it's having in our school. We can talk about it all day, but until there is a rule that we need to follow, um, then people are going to be, you know, they're going to make a decision um, on whether they whether they want to or not, and that's not the way we 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 address issues that that need attention. I love that. Make sure I got it right. Recognize, respond, and redress. Is that correct? Recognize, recognize, respond, redress, and then the last piece is create and sustain. The policy is what allows you to create and sustain. Yes, so, I, and I'll just give you one. I'll just give you one example, Sean. So, in in one of the schools I work with, students weren't allowed to wear hats, right? Um, and that's probably common practice across many schools, right? But our principal there at the time said that the security and her her assistant principals were spending so much time having students, hey, take off your hat, give me your hat, come at the end of the day, pick up your hat. I'll tell your parent, you can't come in until you get your hat. But she was spending, they were spending so much time on that. So she said, let's do it, let's do a study. She said, I've read a couple of research articles. Let's do a study. As long as the student doesn't cover their face, you can see them and all of that, let them wear their hats for two weeks. The amount of time, it, it, the effectiveness of, of the work that was being done by the APs in that, in that time period was, was doubled because they weren't chasing people around about hats. Students felt like they had a level of freedom because they were allowed to wear a hat. It wasn't bothering anybody. So I think we kind of get so caught up into the social norms of we've always done it that way. That's a rule that we have to have. It's a hat, right? So 
as long as it didn't interrupt, it didn't interrupt teaching and learning, let them wear the hat. So she she made the change and it became a new norm in the school that you could wear a hat as long as you don't cover up your face, people can see you um, and you're not being disruptive in any, like you can wear a hat, it's not a big deal. So I think with each generation of learners, we have to adjust and adapt um, and be flexible in the way we do um, our schooling if we want teaching and learning to be taking place. It's just, it's just that simple. Right, right. Yeah, that is a pretty common practice. And you're right, you know, it just takes that does it. And that's always been my question with certain practices like that. Does it take away from learning? <laughs> you know, does it take that's the end of the right. day? Is it taken right. away from learning? Is this one of those things we can just let students pass on and let them have that? Like you said, at the end of the day, it gives them some sort of autonomy in what they do. And in the space that they're in, it gives them that level of comfort, yep. um, especially, you know, if you're not you know, if you're, if you're not minding that too much. All right. So one, one big point here I want to hit on because it really resonates a lot with our health and physical educators and that's social and emotional learning. And you wrote a piece, uh, I believe it was on education week talking about uh, using the, the analogy of a barbershop. And I actually wrote a piece too on how barbershop, particularly in black communities were a hub for, you know, a lot of, you know, knowledge and, and things like that. But you use the analogy of uh, young black boys and the barbershop and that being their access to social emotional learning. And one big piece and what big uh, parts you use in there was there's a gap in access to social and emotional learning. Talk about that gap for our for our um, for our listeners, particularly how that uh, plays out for you know students of color. Okay, so I think that so one thing that I'll say first is social emotional learning has also kind of found itself in the in the bucket of controversial terms in some spaces. So put that in there, and, and it sounds surprising, right? But put that in there with critical race theory and other things that people feel as though they don't understand. You're trying to shape my child's identity. You're trying to indoctrinate them by teaching them how to be or to think or to... So with that, with that in mind, let's scale back and let's look at the... the um, the 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 different areas of social emotional learning so we're talking about self-awareness social merit awareness we're talking about um self-management like kind of thinking through um emotions depression anxiety those types of things and 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 finding what makes you um healthy and 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 um able to take care of oneself there's also relationships and there's decision-making. So those are the five key competencies of social emotional learning. That is taking place every single day in every single space that your child or your students may go to. Whether, whether we are part of facilitating that or not, students are always learning. And they're trying, and they're trying to figure out what is the right thing for them to be doing um, that is healthy for them, that feels good for them, that makes them feel like they belong. Now, when we talk about social emotional learning as it relates to um, students of color, oftentimes social emotional learning may be being delivered in a way that they may not feel connected to it. And with that, it feels like a form of like, you're trying to make folks compliant to 
oh, this is the way you should behave. This is the way you should act, opposed to let's think through what are the norms that we want for this space? How can we make sure everybody's respected and feels um, and feels good being here, right? So I think that's part of the challenge with social emotional learning. It's not always culturally responsive. Um, your racial and cultural identity is part of how you see the world, right? So that's going to impact how you establish relationships, how you make decisions, um, your the way you process your 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 emotions, and of course, self and social awareness is all going to be impacted by race and culture. People think that you know that that there's this um, value-free, neutral approach to social emotional learning. You have to consider the students that you are working with um, to make sure that they feel connected to that learning that you are offering um, that is more social emotional learning centered. So in essence, uh, social emotional learning has to be culturally responsive as well. So, so and, and when I thought you were talking about the article, the article that you're referencing is an education post, but education I did post. write one in, in Education Week that says that um, social emotional learning won't happen without a culturally responsive start, I think is the title. So um, I did speak to the same things that I just mentioned um, about recognizing um, students' racial and cultural identity in your in your social emotional learning work for sure yeah. dr howard we're, we're getting toward the end here but in our in our in our pre-meeting you had a great analogy and you used chris paul for it <laughs> can you please for our listeners here especially you know our health physical educators coaches all that good stuff can you use that analogy to really take home a lot of this uh conversation yeah. for sure for sure um, and I'll, and I'll kind of lead into it with this. There are two conversations going on around equity work. Um, one is a race conversation and race is a social construct. So there are many things that we all have in our mind about what race is and what we see and what the problematic areas, the inequities are. Um, some people want to recognize them and some people do not. Um, that's a larger conversation that school districts should be thinking through. Back to our schools, back to our classrooms, back to our day-to-day -day practices, that's back to culture. Because every one of us has a culture, from the songs that we like, um, the foods that we eat, um, the holidays we celebrate, um, the ways in which we, um, we interact with one another, um, I may look down when, when I'm talking to somebody, a child may look down when they're talking to you as a sign of respect. Some children were taught to look you in the eye as a sign of respect. So oftentimes we have to learn to read our audience, read the diverse learners we have in our room. So we have to be culturally responsive. The, I, was, I was doing a SHAPE um, virtual conference, I think it was last year sometime. And just in the middle, I knew I was working with PE teachers and in the middle of the presentation, just like Chris Paul came to my mind. You know what, it was, it was, during, it was during playoffs and they, they had a great run last year, right? Um, and so I was thinking about to be a culturally responsive teacher, like you, you don't have this like 
vertical type of understanding of teaching and learning. You have a horizontal um, understanding of teaching and learning. So it's not like, oh, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I have to bestow knowledge upon you. It's about, hey, I'm the facilitator of the learning in here, but everybody has something to share in what we're doing here. Everybody has, has value in their own way. And like Chris Paul, he's not known as the, the best player in NBA history, but he's a damn good point guard, right? Because he moves the ball around. He gets people involved. He knows how to get his folks near, near the rim because they, they may do better underneath the basket. He knows how to get folks the ball when they're on the outside. He's calling out the plays. He's reading the defense. I can't remember who their center was, but he's a young guy. He's like 22 years old. Like, how do you, how do you build him up to be a, a Aiton? Aiton's his last name. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you build him up to be strong in his position and know his role as a part of the team? Like, so it's all about, and Chris is not trying to score all the points. Chris is not trying to be the MVP. He's just trying to make sure that his team has more points than the others, right? right. So it's about, at the end of the day, it's about, did my students learn? Did my students grow from this experience? And how am I using my skills to facilitate that learning in our classroom? Um, so I need I need to write a blog piece on so, or something on that. Yeah, there's a lot of I have about that. Um, but I, I thought the point guard position is kind of like that's it. That's that's what culturally responsive teaching looks like: moving the ball, getting folks involved, making plays. Um, and then having having more points than your opponent because you want you want your kids to learn. That's that's the bottom line. And that's a good way to end this conversation. Dr. Howard, uh, tell us about any projects you got going on and how we can follow you. Sounds good. So um, projects going on. One thing that um, the Bond Project will be doing in May, we have a annual um, academy, professional learning academy. Um, so that will be taking place May, I believe the date is 21st. You can go on our website at www.bondeducators.org. Um, in terms of uh, my social media, everything is at Daryl Howard PhD. So please, uh, please follow. Um, we can keep in touch with this type of work. I'm always willing to help folks who are looking to grow, share resources. I follow back. Um, Cause I, I, I enjoy meeting educators, people and in, people inspired, like Twitter saved my life, man. Cause people inspired me seeing what folks are doing across the country and learning from them. Um, like we don't have all the information. We don't know everything, but it's important for us to be able to, um, to learn from one another and um, be able to grow in our craft. So at Daryl Howard PhD um, across all social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, everything. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Daryl Howard from Montgomery County Public Schools. Before we si I sign off here, I just want to take a quick word, and I'm always good for book recommendations for those who are listening. Uh, one I would recommend, especially if you're trying to uh, get yourself into this work, is we want to do more than survive. Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom by uh, Bettina L. Love, and particularly a piece that really, um, you know, sounds to our people as wellness. And as educators, if you are, if you are, um, 
if you advocate for the well-being of children, safe schools, and basically what we do as health and physical educators, the wellness of ourselves as well, then you are taking part in social justice teaching. And if you are doing that, that we ask that you be well. All right is not enough. So please, as you do this work, be well. Thanks for listening and take care. <laughs>